0: Thank you, Ben. Our scripture reading for today comes from Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. If you'd like to stand together and follow along with me in your scriptures, Mark chapter 2, 13 through 22. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, "'Follow me.' So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, "'How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners?' When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. When they came and said to him, why did the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskin, or else the new wine bursts the wineskin. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine is put into new wineskin. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that we can have with us Nick this morning to proclaim your word, and we pray that you would grant him the grace to be able to proclaim boldly and faithfully what you want us to hear. We pray, God, that you would open our ears, that we might hear it, open our hearts, that we might receive it, open our minds, that we might understand it and that we might leave transformed by the renewing of our minds. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Good morning. We are so blessed that we get to worship God even on a dark and dreary day that we have still have this day of rest. I don't know about you guys but I had a busy week as probably as just like a lot of you have had a busy week and it's such a privilege that we get to slow down that we get to hear from God's word. And every time I've been with you we've been working through the gospel of Mark and I just want to remind ourselves of why we're doing this. Why are we preaching straight through The Gospel of Mark. And that's what I'm going to continue to do as I'm with you guys, Lord willing. Every time God brings me back here, I'll be preaching through Mark's Gospel. And I just came across this J.C. Ryle quote in The Holiness of God. Listen to what he says here. He says, It would be well if professing Christians in modern days studied the four Gospels more than they do. No doubt all scripture is profitable. It is not wise to exalt one part of the Bible at the expense of another, but I think it should be good for some who are very familiar with the epistles if they knew a little bit more about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, why do I say this? I say it because I want professing Christians to know more about Christ. It is well to be antiquated with all the doctrines and principles of Christianity. It is better to be antiquated with Christ himself. It's well to be familiar with faith, grace, justification, and sanctification, and all the other good doctrines. You can fit just anything in there. They all matter. They're all matters, though, They matter in the way that they pertain to the king. It is far better to be familiar with Jesus himself, to see the king's own face, and to behold his glory. This is the one secret of eminent holiness. He that would be conformed to Christ's image must become a Christ-like man and must be constantly studying Christ himself. See, what R.C. Ryle is doing here is he's trying to show us that we oftentimes study scripture and we learn different teachings of scripture, but we learn about them sometimes in our study as these abstract truths that we learn about that we need faith in order to be saved or that if we profess our faith, that we'll be declared righteous or we wanna grow practically, we wanna grow in holiness. We don't want to do the sins that we used to do We want to grow. We want to learn about the future. We want to learn about so many different things. And what we get when we read the Gospels is we get the connecting point for all these things. All those are great truths, but they're only great truths so far as they connect us with Christ. You're not saved by your apprehension of certain theological truths. Those truths are very important. But what you're actually saved by is a person. The Lord Jesus Christ is the person who saves sinners. He teaches us from his word who he is. And that's the question that we constantly come back to, especially in the first half of Mark, is we keep coming back to the same question of who is Jesus. And Mark here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, 6, he's teaching us who Jesus is, moving beyond his introduction to teach us by way of a foil. And if you haven't been in the English class in a while, that's okay. I had to Google the term myself. A foil is just a character that's meant to contrast the main character. And the contrast is not so that you focus on In our text the pharisees and learn about them but it's the contrast that we see that highlights certain characteristics about who jesus is and that's what we get here there's this scene of jesus that steve just read for us a scene of jesus feasting with sinners and this is what provokes the pharisees to their next challenge of jesus And their challenge of Jesus, who he is, really ends up showing a lot about themselves, yes, and showing how different they are from Jesus Christ. But the point of it is to highlight things about who Jesus is. In verses 13 through 17, we'll see that they first confront Jesus, and it's not really about food when it comes to Jesus feasting with sinners. It's really about who Jesus is associating himself with. And then when we look, read verses 18, 18 through 20, we'll see now it's all of a sudden about food. About him, why is he not fasting? And in this, we're going to learn about who the Pharisees are in a way that helps us to bring the light clearer who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And when we get to verse 13, we just picked up from the very first challenge and the challenge that the Son of Man has to forgive sins, which leads pretty well into verse 13 because Jesus then has a feast with sinners. Let's pick up at verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And he passed by and he saw Levi. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that this Levi character—that this is no other, this is none other than Matthew, the apostle, not just any disciple, but one of the twelve disciples. And Levi, the son of Alphaeus, was sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, "Follow me." And he rose and followed him. Matthew was a tax collector. And this is the thing that the Pharisees really pick up on. In this feast, when Jesus is having this feast with sinners, it's really clear once you get to verse 16 that you see why they have a problem with Jesus. At least in this scene, when the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, in other words, the Pharisees are talking to Jesus' disciples, saying, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners. You see, the Pharisees were a group of, that developed kind of in the intertestamental period. We don't really read about them in the Old Testament because their development came later in the context, really, of the Jewish exile in Babylon. And subsequently, when they were then not just oppressed by the Babylonians, but then the Greeks came in, and oppress them. And now the Romans have come in and oppressed them. And the Pharisees really developed from this group called the Hasidim that really focuses on a zeal for God's law. That they were really fixated on following God's law, seeing throughout the Old Testament how God constantly accused God's people of not following his law, and that being the reason for the exile. So they wanted to follow God's law very closely. And the Pharisees saw themselves as fixating on God's law so much that what they decided to do was to ensure that we do not break God's law, we're going to add new laws to follow. So if the law is do not murder, then you are not to maybe, you're not to get someone, do something that might cause someone to get angry. So they would set up a law that you can't do something, you can't do this, that if the law was we need to be holy and we need to be separate from the world, that we need to then fast multiple times a day to make sure that we're in constant prayer. And they kept doing this with all of God's law. They ended up setting this hedge around it. And the tradition of the elders ended up coming with some 600 odd laws that we get in the Mishnah by the year, like 200 or 300. They were... They were fixated on being holy. Then why are they having such a problem with Jesus associating with tax collectors and sinners? Well, the reason why they have a problem with tax collectors is because in the ancient world, they really were the worst of sinners. This was not people that you wanted to associate with. They were ranked with the worst because of the corruption that was often involved in doing the job that they had to do. They often acted, since they were really working for the Roman government, the oppressors, they often acted as extortionists. A tax collector was getting the money that the Roman government required of them, but any money in addition to that that they were able to collect from the Jews, they were able to keep themselves. Think about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and it identifies him as a rich man who was able, then he, recognizing his sins when he came to Christ, his turning away looked like giving back all the money that he had stolen from other people. And it wasn't just in the Jewish world that the tax collectors were hated. There was a Roman, uh, that, his name was Sabinus, who kept a clean office as a tax collector. And it was such an unusual thing to have a good tax collector that in honor of his death, we found this inscription on his tombstone saying, Carlos Tessianti, which says, here lies an honest tax collector. That's how rare it was. And a big testament to Sabinus himself. Tax collectors were hated because they were part of the Roman government. They were collecting taxes. They were extortionists. They would lie and falsely accuse brothers if they did not pay their taxes. There was a particular antipathy to them. That's why they can say about the tax collectors in verse 15, that many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus. You see this crowd that's eating with Jesus They're known for being the worst of sinners because who else would associate with scumbags, which would be the kind of our general phrase for this. The only people who would associate with a scumbag would be other scumbags. So what's Jesus, what's the Pharisee saying is, why are you eating with them? Why are you associating them? The accusation is really a guilt by association. The Pharisees did have one thing right. Pharisees focused on the law, focused on making sure they don't break the law, were really zealous about their zeal and focusing on the law that they hated sin. They were disgusted by sin. When they saw people doing what is wrong, it made their stomach churn. And as a result, they thought, if you see someone who's being a scumbag to someone else, that what it looks like being holy, according to God's law, must look like separating myself from them. We do this too, don't we? Don't we often look at other people's sins, the sins of the world, and get disgusted by it? When we see things like abortion going on in society, it rightly should cause our stomachs to churn that such evil would go on in our society. Or sexual immorality. It should get us heated up. It should cause us to get fired up about those issues. The problem with the Pharisees was that they did not see their own sin, they were disgusted by the sins of other people, but they did not have a disgust for their own sin, nor would they possibly confess that they were sinners, because they have done everything they could to make sure they did not break God's law. And 1 John chapter 1 does tell us that sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of God's law. That sin is by definition breaking God's law. And they thought because they had this whole system set up that they did not break God's law. So they were all in the clear. And at this point, I also want to clarify another thing. Some sins are worse than others. When we are given the good news of the gospel in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, it's a good and trustworthy saying that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Jesus, when he's interacting with Pilate in John chapter 19, says that the one who gave gave me over to you, to Pilate, committed the worst sin. Jesus, when he was having that interaction, did not say that Pilate was innocent when he condemned Jesus to death on the cross, but he did make a distinction and said that they committed, the Jews who handed Jesus over to him, by a trial that was conducted at night when they knew he was innocent. That was the worst sin. So what Jesus is saying here is he's not associating with these sinners and tax collectors because they're not really just as bad as everyone else. No, they actually are worse than other people by the sins that they've committed that are more heinous in God's sight. Things like murder and extortion are worse than just hatred that stays in the heart the problem is what they missed is that all sin every transgression of god's law is worthy of god's wrath and curse including the death penalty that's why when adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and when he ate that fruit he sinned against god and guess what the whole human race was condemned to death by what seems to us this insignificant sin of eating a fruit. But what we forget about God's law is that we're talking about the God of the universe here. We are breaking the God of the universe's law, and all sin does deserve God's wrath and punishment. That is proven by Scripture. And if you really want to see what the Pharisees look like and see this attitude, it'd be helpful to turn to Luke chapter 18. We're just going to read a couple of verses, but I think it'd be really helpful to see this. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, starting at verse 9, it says, and he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is the exact situation with Jesus when he's feasting with the sinners. It's not really about food, is it? Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." What the Pharisees had wrong is they did not have wrong the fact that God is good and that his law is holy. Their problem is they did not understand the true implications of having a holy God and having a holy law. What the implication of that is? Isaiah 55 verses 6 and 7 says that talking about God, that how people are to turn, It's God says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to his God, for he that he might have compassion upon him, and to his God, for he will abundantly pardon. You see, throughout the entire Old Testament, God does command that his people are to be holy. Leviticus 19, verse 9 says, Be holy, or Leviticus 19, verse 1, rather says be holy because i am holy and first peter in the new testament picks up on the same boat uh, the same verse and quotes it in first peter chapter one we are to be holy because our god is holy but god's holiness does not keep him at a distance from sinners rather god's holiness is the way is the the implication of his holiness causes him to pursue after sinners yes no Sinner is able to stand in God's presence, and every sinner will, when they enter into heaven or when they die and stand before the judgment scene of God, he will not acquit the wicked, he will judge them. But it's wrong to assume that that means that God does not desire the salvation of every sinner. What we see in the Lord Jesus Christ is he's representing true holiness a holiness that comes and seeks after the lost. And we need to be careful ourselves that we don't get so caught up in the sins of others and get so disgusted by it that it keeps us at a distance from other people. Rather, our disgust at the sins of the world and when we see things like abortion, it should cause us to go to the abortion doctors that they might be saved knowing where their eternal destiny is. It should cause us to go after the women who murder their children, to call them to himself, to call them to Jesus, that they might have their sins forgiven, that they do not have to suffer under God's wrath. So we see that really this was not about food at all. They targeted the fact that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, but that really wasn't the issue, was it? The issue was really this assumption that Jesus' is guilt by association when rather Jesus' very holiness is what caused him to pursue after sinners and is what should cause us to go after sinners as well. But just before it's not about food, now in verses 18 through 20, they make it about food. Let's read verse 18. Now when John's disciples... And the Pharisees now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples not fast? Do you remember what we just read in Luke chapter 18? The Pharisee, when he was proclaiming his good works, What did he say? He started off with, I fast twice a week. You know what's really interesting is that the Pharisees, even though their unique characteristic that kind of singled them out among all the Jews in Jerusalem was their obsession with the law of God, oddly enough, we only get one command to fast in the entire Old Testament. We only get one command, and that's in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 through 31, and it's it's a fast that's to be held in preparation for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. What's the reason for the fast? What's Yom Kippur? It's the Day of Atonement. It's the day that there will be a lamb sacrifice on their behalf. Since sin. The punishment for sin is death. That's the wages of it. They were to mourn over their sins, mourning the fact that they have offended a holy God. And what happened on Yom Kippur is that their sins, the sins of them, were laid on that lamb, and that lamb was killed in their place. Now, Yom Kippur is not the only place that we see fasting. But we do see, whenever we see fasting, is we see it associated with sorrow and pain and sadness. Yom Kippur was the only commanded instance of fasting for their sins. But we do see instances like in Esther. When Esther is about to go to the king to ask for the salvation of the Jews, she says, please pray for me and fast. Why? Because... They were mourning over the fact that they could be killed. And they were sorrowful, weeping over that. So they fasted. When we read the Psalms, we do see fasting. Why? Because they were sorrowful over the situation of exile. Sorrowful over the state of Israel being in sin and not turning back to God. We see laments happening time and time again. Why are the Pharisees fasting, though? The Pharisees are really fasting, not because they have any understanding of what the Bible teaches on fasting, but because this is what they do. This is a pious action that is to earn credit with God. It's the self-righteousness that they look at this list of things that they've done. If you want to get a feel for this, read Philippians chapter 3, when Paul lists his list of achievements, the things that he was proud of. That's what we get. But Jesus, instead of looking at their false view of baptism, uh, baptism, their false view of fasting, Jesus instead presents them with what true fasting is. In verse 19, Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The answer is no. Why? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. See, what Jesus is doing here, he understands that fasting, the purpose of fasting, is lament, sorrow, and it's to be something that's voluntary at any time, that any, even today, Christians, when we encounter hard times, fasting is completely appropriate in order to help us to focus in prayer. But what Jesus is saying to them is, if you're at a wedding, what are we called to do? We're called to be joyous. Why? Because our Friend is getting wedding is getting wedding. Our friend is getting married. You know, if you have a lot of hard things going on in life and you're at a wedding, it's really inappropriate to be weeping. You're supposed to be happy for the person who's getting married because this is a joyous occasion for your friend. He's talking. Can the wedding guest really be sorry and weeping, sorrowful during a wedding? The answer is absolutely not. It would be completely inappropriate. So, as the analogy continues, so as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But don't miss verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. The word there could also be snatched up from them. And then they will fast in that day this is the very first allusion that Jesus gives to his own death. Jesus came, and he knew that he came with the purpose to die on the cross to save sinners, to atone, to be that lamb on which the sins of the world would be laid laid on, that he would be the Yom Kippur Day of Atonement, that this Day of Atonement would be seen on Jesus's cross as he was Died not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people, and in that day, it would be a day of sorrow, when it would be appropriate to say, "What this? What a terrible thing has just happened! The Messiah was crucified; that he had died." But the good news is, is that the disciples didn't have to mourn too long. The time of, of fasting came back when Jesus rose again from the dead. But Jesus basically is saying here, he has an understanding of true fasting and it's not what the Pharisees are doing. Isaiah 55, uh, Isaiah 55, five, chapter 58 addresses this kind of fasting, this kind of superficial attitude of making this religious practice into something that's gonna earn God's favor. And there in Isaiah 55, or Isaiah 58, quoting too many different places from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 58, God says, when have I commanded you to fast? The answer is he's only done it once. He calls them instead to love mercy, to pursue holiness, to turn from their sins, to delight in God's Sabbath, which was something he commanded them to do. When we look at this, Jesus fasting, having feasts with sinners, first, it's not about food, it's really about who he's with. Second, then they make it about food and the fact that they're fasting, but he is not. Then Jesus really points out what the real issue is. What the real issue is in verses 21 and 22 is pointed out by this powerful illustration of really something simple cloth and wineskins let's go ahead and read that verse 21 no one sews a piece of unstrung cloth to an old garment if he does the patch tears away from it new from the old and the worse the tear is made what happens when you buy new clothes and you put up you wash it for the first time it shrinks So if you have an old, if I have an old uh, pants and I have a tear in it and I put a new piece of material on it and I wash it, what's going to happen? Well, the pants that I've worn and has been washed multiple times is not going to shrink, but the one patch will shrink. At that point, if you're going to repair a patch of your pants, uh, substitute whatever article of clothing you want there, but if I only have new cloth, I might as well not even sew it together. I might as well just wait until either I have something, some used cloth or not do it at all, because it's just going to make things worse. Verse 22, and no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine skins will burst, uh, will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. Now, this one's not quite something that we interact with in every day. Well, the clothing we might interact with, if you know how to sew, which I really don't. So I had to look it up. (laughs) But wineskins was something very common to Jesus's day as well. What they would do is they they would take a goat or a calf or a camel. They would use the hide of it. They would tan the leather. They would take off the... They would shave off the hair, turn it inside out, and they would sew it all up together and putting resin along the seams of it. And that would be your traveling case for your wine. You had a wine traveling case right there that you just fill up that skin for. But what would happen over time, especially once you ran out of wine, is it would start to get really stiff, really brittle. And over time, it just become this hardened flask. And if it gets too hard, it loses its flexibility that a soft new leather would have. And when you put new wine into a really stiff bottle, what happens when you have new wine? New wine, unlike, you know, they didn't have Welch's grape juice back in Jesus's day All wine was grape juice that was quickly, almost instantaneously, started fermenting and would get stronger and stronger. And as wine ferments, just like anything ferments, CO2 builds and is released, and the pressure increases and increases. And if you have old wineskins that are stiff and brittle and cannot flex with the increase of pressure, eventually, they do burst. The seams rip open. And what Jesus says is then, you know what? It would have been better just to have new wineskins. What's Jesus trying to do here? He's making an illustration of the difference between him and the Pharisees. I say this because of the context that he's in. These two illustrations are in the center of five different challenges to Jesus' authority, to who Jesus is. And Jesus says, you know what the difference between me and you is? Is we're completely incompatible. That's the difference between me and you. Your teachings about God's holiness requiring complete separation from sinners and wanting to see all of the sinful world damned. That's not God, the holy God who pursues after sinners. It's completely incompatible. There's no mixture here. Notice in both of these illustrations, the new cannot be mixed with the old. And it's not some disdain for what is old and a desire or a love for what is new. It's the difference between the Pharisees and their teachings and Jesus's. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ The gospel of God's free grace, the gospel that people are forgiven, that Jesus does have the authority to forgive sins, this is an exclusive gospel. It's one that cannot be mixed or diluted with any gospel of legalism, any gospel that you need to do certain things in order to make yourself righteous before God. First, because it misunderstands God's holiness, Second, because it misunderstands our own sin, that no one is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God, Romans chapter three. It misunderstands what God's law is. God's law is not just some empty ritual of things that we do. God's law is never arbitrary. There's always reasons behind it. And what we do, when we do fast, we need to know the reason why we're fasting. When we do follow God's law, we need to know that this is not something that earns us credit with a holy God, but rather it's something that we do because we want to be Christ-like. See, the Pharisees, even though they are the supposed experts of God's law, Jesus' constant refrain throughout the Gospels towards the Pharisees is, Have you not read... Ten times we read instances when he says this, have you not read? In Matthew chapter 12, verses 3 and 5, in Matthew chapter 19, chapter 21, uh, twice in chapter 21, in chapter 22, Mark in chapter 2, verse 25, chapter 12, uh, it appears twice, and then also in Luke chapter 6, Jesus constantly is saying to the Pharisees, have you not read? He could have said here, "Have you not read Isaiah chapter 58? Fasting is not something that God has commanded of you to be righteous before him. Fasting, while it maybe is a good thing, better is to actually keep God's law rather than your own traditions." The difference between Jesus and the Pharisees is not a difference between Judaism and the new covenant. Rather, what Jesus has done is Jesus has come in fulfillment of all Scripture. He is the one who tells us what Scripture says, what Scripture means, and all the implications of it. And, you know, while it wasn't the point in today's passage, if we were to start doing Jewish practices following the law, following the ceremonial system— Now that Jesus has come and died on the cross and has fulfilled it all, all of it now, all of the ceremonial law is empty practices because the substance of what they were pointing to was Jesus Christ himself. And we're right back at the original question. Who is Jesus What we see here in the main point of this passage is that Jesus is completely at odds with the Pharisees. While the Pharisees teach that God does not love sinners, Jesus teaches rather that holiness, God's holiness is the very thing that causes God in his love to pursue after sinners. Not because their sins are not disgusting. All sin is wicked and vile before God. Some sins really are worse than others. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever should believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God, when he saved the Israelites out of Egypt, did not save them because they were better than anyone else. Actually, once God in the Old Testament saved Israel out of Egypt, They acted just like all the peoples around them. It was not, God did not see something even in us so valuable, so lovely that that was the thing that motivated him to save us. You know what motivated God to save you if you believe in him today, if you trusted him today? It's God's love. It's his free grace. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. That's the the mystery of the gospel is that he chose to love sinners. People who do wicked and awful things. Isaiah 55, now I'm getting the quotation right. Isaiah 55, after he tells sinners to turn to him that he may have compassion on him, the very next line says, for his thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither are his ways our ways. That is such good news. I wouldn't go after and seek to associate and seek to befriend in my own nature the scumbags of society. And I definitely wouldn't consider myself, if I didn't have God's law, to see and bear testimony to my sins. I definitely wouldn't see myself that way. I would see myself as a good person. But the good news is, is that though I am not, I was saved. And if I've been forgiven much, I can go out and seek to see other sinners be forgiven of their sins. And you know what? The more sin that they have, the, bo- the more God's grace abounds to them. Who is Jesus? He is the savior of sinners. This is what he came to do. Jesus is holy. Jesus' holiness is also defined by scripture. Jesus' holiness, when he does not, the fact that he does not fast here, he does not, he's not limited to other people's misunderstanding of what scripture says. He displays full obedience to God's law and has displays perfect understanding of it all. And Jesus is unique. Uh, Jesus' is holiness is in unique, in a unique position away from the rest of the Jews. Because of who he is, is unique. Jesus was the son of God. He was the son of man. He was the only savior. He's the only savior of sinners that they have. His holiness is separate from them. He is righteous and none other are. But Jesus's righteousness is the very thing that 2 Corinthians chapter five says has given us a ministry of reconciliation. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the God man who is righteous, who is holy, who pursues after sinners. This Jesus is the one that demands your all, that demands us to follow him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And the good news is, is that if you trust in Jesus, he has done it all. He has saved you from your sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being our God in our Savior. Thank you for sending your Son to die on the cross to save sinners. Lord, we thank you that you did not leave us to perish, that you did not leave us to die in our sins, but instead you called us to yourself that we might be saved. And I do pray, Lord, that in our hearts that we would not be so disgusted with the sins of other people that we forget about our own sins and how much we've been forgiven of. We know that every sin provokes your wrath because it's a sin, a rebellion of cosmic treason against the God of the universe, the king of all creation. Lord, I pray that in our association as we seek to save the lost, that we would not deny them the privilege of hearing the good news, that we would not just make friends with sinners, but that we would call them to repentance, knowing that their only hope in life and death is to be found in union with Christ, to have Jesus as their Lord and Savior as he is for for us. Lord, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as the servants of sinners. Lord, I pray that you would help us to continue in our worship today as we have been given a clear understanding of who the Lord Jesus is, that we would now, as we sing our songs, be more in awe of the glorious gospel, the glory of our King. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.